Thank you for listening to Together for Peace with Reem Gunaim. Welcome, Beast Builders, to the Together for Peace webinar series. On this webinar, we connect and create a community of shared values and its aspirations for peace and human rights. We do this by bringing to you the most inspiring peace builders from around the world to motivate and help you take action for peace today. Before I start, I would like to thank the amazing production team, Anna De Selva, Anis Zaman, and Daniel Hollis for their exceptional work. I also would like to thank RAGAFI members, dedicated audience, and RAGAFI leadership for their support. Now, it is time to start today's webinar. Today, I am so happy and honored to introduce to you our amazing guest and my friend, Muyatwa Sitali. Muyatwa is the current program specialist, specialist for sanitation and water for all, a global platform by UNICEF to ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for the world's most vulnerable communities. Muyatwa's peace building journey did not start at SWA. Muyatwa is a global citizen who operates from a space of deep understanding, compassion, and dedication for peace. Growing up on a small farm in Zambia, he lived the reality of relying on the river, the soil, and the few resources around to compete against large-scale farming practices and climate change. He has worked all over Africa, including Liberia, Niger, and Senegal, to witness the connection of poverty and disease to communities lacking access to clean water and sanitation. Muyatwa had the exciting opportunity to earn his master's degree at the Duke UNC Peace Center as Rotary Peace Fellow, where our friendship began. There, he creatively merged his life and professional experiences to deepen the understanding of issues related to clean water, access, and sanitation. Muyatwa went on to build the connections and opportunity to eventually work for the World Bank, UNICEF, and SWA. At SWA currently, Muyatwa works at the macro level, partnering with organizations, governments, and nations to create sustainable programs and initiatives to help over 3 billion people gain access to clean water and healthy sanitation systems around the globe. Muyatwa's well-rounded journey will inspire you to protect everyone's human right to clean water and sanitation. Without further ado, uh, let's meet my friend and dear friend, Sitali. So Sitali, I will dive in and ask you the first question um, about your upbringing. I know that water and sanitation um, has impacted you growing up on a farm in Zambia. And um, I am very intrigued by your friendship or your affinity to your cow, Blackie because she helped you in a way and your community survive that struggle caused by water access. So would you please share with us uh, the story of Blackie and, um, and also the story of access to water? Well, Rim, thank you so much. I, I appreciate the invitation. I also would like to, to greet those that are um, listening to us um, here on this platform and those who are also following on Facebook. Thank you so much, Rim, for the invitation. I'm uh, really delighted to have the chance to speak with you 
I have followed your work over the years from the last time we met, we were at um, Duke and UNC and uh, all this amazing work that you've been doing with the with the Rotary Action Group for Peace. Thank so you. well you 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 take you take me back to to Blackie. So um, let me just start by uh, saying I grew up on a farm, as Reem has um, already indicated, and um, my mother was a teacher, my father was a farmer, and uh, this is back in the 80s. Um, we had animals early in the days when I was born, we had a lot of animals. And so we used to get milk from the cows and be able to sell the milk to, to sustain us, to add also to the daily, to the monthly income that my mom brought. Uh, but, and uh, often we would get the milk in the evening, put it in a can or a container and then put it in a stream that passed through our farm so that it would be cold by morning, then we can take it to the market. And then a few years down the line, the stream dried. Uh, I think possibly climate change, maybe those were the early signs of climate change. But so the stream dried and we could not anymore preserve the milk overnight. And so partly because of that, and I think as other reasons as well, we could not continue to have as many animals as we would have liked also as we had at the beginning. So we started selling off the animals until we had only one cow that was left. And that cow was almost completely black everywhere. And it had a very small white patch in, um, at the front. Uh, but even regardless of that small white patch, we just called it Blackie. But it was the sole survival of all the animals that we had in part connected to the stream that had dried. And so when I was in seventh grade, um, I remember for many, many days in that year, I would wake up very early in the morning. Most of my brothers had already gone to, to high school. So I'd wake up very early in the morning, get the milk from the cow, and then walk about three kilometers to the west and exchange the milk with uh, things like maize meal, exchange the milk with things like sugar or salt or soap, whatever commodities that we needed at home, then come back home with those commodities leave those commodities at home and then rush to go to my school, which was another two kilometers on the opposite side of the farm, and then come back again and study. So, uh, I mean, if you talk about Blackie, you're reminding me of the stream, but you're also reminding me of the education in that year, my seventh grade, which was quite a pivotal year because that's when you actually transition to go to the first years of high school in Zambia. Yeah, but that's partly the story of Blackie. Well, this is a, a very fascinating story about you, really, and Blackie and your community. And if we want to unpack it a little bit, I'm fascinated that, for example, you didn't have a refrigerating system and you only had the river to rely on um, um, keeping the milk uh, cool enough so it wouldn't uh, spoil um, or, or go bad. And once the, um, the, dry, the stream dried, you really lost that um, part of your supply, like the chain of like operations yes. that was key for you to maintain that production. And then um, the idea that you had to cut back on your production because of that link, like you didn't have a way to store the milk. And it was because you've lost your right to access water, which is very basic thing, like access, like having the river um, and having the water near your community versus not having it meant that you, your economic status and your lifestyle and your business model entirely mm. would be uh, disturbed by that. And uh, of course you are 
a hero in the story because you were um, urged to act um, in a positive way. You contributed, you didn't give up, and you didn't lose focus on your education. Mm-hmm. That's what makes you an inspiring leader today, among ma- many other things. Um, so, Sitali, um, this is a, this, one of the starting points on your journey to realizing this water problem. But I know from talking to you earlier about Liberia and your journey to Liberia and how that opened your eyes to the bigger problem of water and sanitation. Mm-hmm. So can you share with us that story? Why access to water and sanitation is so important? How does that play out in real life for other communities beyond your farming community, like yes. in the bigger world? Yeah. Yes. So, well, th- thanks, Rim. So I, I, I care a lot about water and sanitation and I, I, Sometimes it keeps me awake at night. And this is not just because I go back to the farming days when the stream dries. At that time, maybe I wasn't making all the connections very well. But um, in 2008, I got the opportunity to go and work in Liberia. So, well, yes, I got the job. It was on water and sanitation, communications and advocacy. But when I got to Liberia, I found out it was raining for most of the time. In fact, it can rain, my understanding is it rains six months in a year and it's nearly constant rain. So it was raining a lot. And early on when I got there, I started to ask myself the question, what is really the water problem here? Because there is so much water, it rains a lot. I knew of course there were issues of quality and other things. And so I started um, wanting to actually experience this problem from very close on. Yes, I was in Liberia, but I was an expatriate. I was living in a place where I had water whenever I I needed, I could turn on the tap and I had it, um, and I could flush the toilet and all that. So um, one morning, one Sunday morning, I I had a friend who who I had invited to come and be with me for the weekend. And this is a gentleman that I had met at church. And uh, I had been telling him about the fact that I wanted to go to a community where I could see I could uh, I could see this water and sanitation problem from very close. And so this Sunday morning, I wake up, I go to my window, I open the curtain, I look. It's a bright sunny day. It's not raining that Sunday, so I'm excited. I I I, I call I call out his name. I, I I call him to to wake up, and he says, "What is it?" I say, "It's not raining today." Can we go out to go and see at least a community that's close by? And it's a Sunday, so at least I have some time. So he wakes up very quickly and we drive off. So we go to a community that's called West Point. Um, So we get to West Point and uh, we park our car and we walk down in the community. I mean, it's people living very close to each other. Their houses and markets are all, and where people are selling, it's somewhat mixed. And it is quite packed. You can see that it's quite densely populated. But still, I cannot see this sanitation problem. I I can get a sense, yes, it's a crowded community. And as we go further into the community, I realize we're getting to the edge of the community. And then we leave the houses right behind us and right in front of us is the beach, the Atlantic Ocean. So now I'm upset at my friend because he has not showed me anything. He's instead brought me to the beach. And there's a lot of plenty miles of of very nice beaches in Monrovia. So I looked at him and I, with the face that was communicating why are we here and so he turns eastwards and he didn't say anything but he he just sort of gave me the picture of look that way so i tend to look to the east 
and I, I look at the distance, there are people who seem to be sitting along the coastline. And at first it didn't make a lot of sense. And then he started, he turned and started walking in that direction. So I followed him. And as I followed him, I then realized those people that were sitting on the shores of the sea were actually using the beach as a toilet. And it was not one person, it was not two people, it was a lot of people. And it was not like they were spaced meters far, meters apart. They were literally within a conversation distance. And these are people who would know each other. And when you look back, their homes are just about five meters away. They're sitting right where the water hits, uh, hits the banks and just where the sand ends. And the water comes and it can hit there and it can wash stuff into the water. And, I'm, and I, I, at that moment, it just hit me. And you know, water is life, sanitation is dignity. And at that point, I just thought, here's sanitation, here's dignity being put at risk every single day when these people have to wake up. When they wake up, their choice is to go on the banks of the sea. And that's the choice that they have. And they have to do this with an audience. There's people in front of them that are walking past, people behind kids that were playing. And I, I, I just realized, the, I mean, we know this, behind the numbers, there are real people. And it didn't make sense to me that this should be a choice that people should have. Now, at that time, uh, a, a lot of people actually were doing what is called open defecation. So their choice when they wake up in the morning is to go in the bush or to go to the beach like those people or to go to some other type of sanitation choice, which is really not healthy, puts their lives at risk, but it also puts their own dignity at risk. And that for me was the moment I thought, it doesn't make sense, it shouldn't be like this. And if you come to today, still about a billion people do what is called open defecation. For them, their choice is to go out in the open. They're risking every day their dignity. And I feel, I just feel that with all the resources and capabilities that we have, uh, we should be doing better um, in, in a lot of places. And that for me was the, the moment at which I felt this is much more than just a job, uh, that something needed to be done. Sitala, this is so powerful. Uh, life, uh, water is life, sanitation is dignity. Uh, it really summons what humanity, um, like a human right is like you can't just give someone water without sustaining their dignity. Water and sanitation are combined together. And that image you described so vividly for us, um, I can't even imagine as a woman, how would a woman um, experience this? And um, like doing her thing in public, like that also exposes women to maybe high risk of, of violence. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I am also thinking about um, how does sanitation also affect women's dignity beyond just doing it in the open? Like mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, when it mm -hmm. comes to the issue of, of periods, like women it, like have to, um, um, to go through this cycle every uh, month and when they don't have access to toilet and privacy, um, mm -hmm. how does that look like in real life? So yeah, they, this, um, 
my own introduction to this issue was I was in I was in primary school, and so we it was time for us to go for a, for a break, right? So I think it was maybe ten in the morning, or it was ten thirty. I can't remember exactly what time it was, but it was a moment when we all just had some freedom. We could walk outside, play for half an hour, come back to class, and so we all get out on our desks and we start walking out and we're playing outside. But we realize one of our friends had still remained in class. She did not move. And so we went back and she was close. So we were trying to encourage her to, to come and play. And uh, she, couldn't, she couldn't do it until she asked just for some of the girls to remain. And the teacher came. And what did we learn? Um, she had had a period. And they're in class, in school. There were no materials to help her. So she left. She went home. She didn't come back for several days. Now. Today, if you go to a number of uh, schools in remote areas, you will find um, they would possibly have some materials at school to help uh, girls who actually need to use them. Now, why is this issue really important? So for girls, if they don't have the products, they don't have the, the, the materials that they should use, it can affect their attendance at school. Um, they can choose not to go to school. They can choose to leave school early on the day when that happens, like it happened to my friend, and they can choose not to come back again. That's time that is lost. Um, we know that there's evidence now in some countries where um, they, they, the women are not allowed to, to have a break and be able to actually uh, use these facilities when they actually need them. So that affects, for them that day when this happens, maybe they will take a day off. Those are wages lost. So this is not just about where they don't have materials. It's also is the workplace environment conducive for them to do that. And are people losing wages because they, 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 they have to attend to, 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 to they, they have a period. Um, and then you've got also in healthcare centers, if, if these facilities are, are not there, there is no water for people to wash. Uh, this can actually impact on the hygiene of people. So I think that it goes beyond, I mean, there's this type of taboo that we need to cross. Um, there's a taboo that men should talk about this. I, I think that we should find solutions that are cost effective, solutions that remove the cost barrier. If, you, if, if, if girls in rural areas um, need these materials, they cost should not be a problem. How much the, 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 the menstrual hygiene products cost, that should not be a problem. They should be able to have them. At school, they should be able to have options where they can actually have the information and the knowledge and also have a supportive environment uh, so that the boys don't stigmatize them, so that they're not laughed at. And that it contributes to having a fuller and dignified experience, which is not just important in its own right, but it's also a human right. Um, uh, you have a right to education, you have a right to water and sanitation, you also have um, a right to good health. So these things are really important um, uh, and, and I think that they go beyond just having the physical materials but uh, to enabling people to actually enjoy a full life. So Sitali, what you're describing for me, it, it like describes how sometimes structures in place or systems in place that doesn't work uh, for sanitation and water emphasizes this gender inequality and like uh, and how and brighten like widens the gap for women accessing opportunity versus men accessing opportunity at and it's so heartbreaking to hear that this is happening at the very basic level um, 
And so I, I wonder, like you've said, I've, I've, I've read your phenomenal article about uh, the political issue of periods. And you said a very wonderful statement, uh, periods are a political issue too. So can you explain to us why this is a political issue, why it is important for us to consider um, periods at a political level? Okay, so I think that um, when, I, when I was writing that uh, article, uh, we had just heard from Nigeria that the Ministry of Finance had announced they were going to remove uh, value-added tax on some of the locally made menstrual, um, of locally made products that uh, help with menstrual management, menstrual health. And I, if you look at that and you go back a few years, um, so I was in a meeting, it was in Stockholm and we had the, the high level chair of the partnership I work for, who was talking to some of the ministers and he was telling them to do something about the issue of menstrual health management. And I remember being in two meetings, one meeting where the minister said, oh, that's an issue for the Ministry of Health. We're going to talk to the Ministry of Health, Health and see what the Minister of Health can do. And then the other minister said, I get the point. I think there's something we can do about it or look into it. So at that moment, they did not talk about specific solutions, but this minister went back and two years down the line, uh, his Minister of Finance announces that they were going to remove value added tax on these locally made products. And I, I was fascinated by the fact that they had found a solution at that high political level to enable girls to easily have access to products. How? By, reduce, by removing value-added tax, which means that the product would sell at a cheaper price. So that, to me, is removing the cost barrier to these materials so that people can easily access them and be able to use them and maybe even distribute where they actually need it because that's an important issue in villages where um, the choice is between buying salt and buying um, uh, a pad. Uh, so what, what, what is the mother going to choose in an environment where they have to buy cornmeal or buy a pad? So in that circumstance, you're helping them to to, to you're helping to them to manage that choice if they have these products at a cheaper price. And that is why for me, I thought that the response chain to this problem of uh, menstrual hygiene, the response chain is not just at an individual level for every woman. It's not just at the household level for every mother and father. It's also a political matter. There is something that a politician can do. They've done, they've done that in Nigeria. Uh, in South Africa, they also worked around um, uh, uh, the cost, the issue of pricing. And we know that there are several other countries that are trying to do that, including in the United States, where some states are trying to do something there, as well as in Europe, uh, where there are some countries doing that. So it is a political matter. Why is it a political matter? Women form a very huge part of our workforce. If for a number of days in the month, they are not able to contribute effectively we are basically fighting the economic battle with part of our hand tied to the back, and we can't afford that. That is why I think that we need to look at it beyond just the facilitating of services, but also how does it contribute to having women and girls be able to enjoy a life that is um, fairly uh, okay and fairly comfortable. That is fascinating. Um, I like 
this uh, concept of how the um, production chain has different players and the government could be one of those players that would uh, alleviate some of the barriers for women to access uh, the products that they need to survive that um, um, uh, issue of sanitation. Um, Sitali, uh, sanitation is, um, I think you've covered it very brilliantly. And I want to a little change the topic a little bit to go back to water, especially in relation to COVID-19. Um, mm. I was uh, fascinated by the story you shared about um, that water can be um, um, a source of suffering for, uh, for other people if it's not even clean water. Uh, so water can cause people to die, uh, mm -hmm. can cause people disease. It's a, a public health issue if, if it's not well treated. And you shared this fascinating story um, about um, um, the, the cholera and how uh, that was um, a disease that transmitted through water. Can you share to, uh, with us how does that look like in real world and share that fascinating story of mm. water and its relation to, to health? Yes, okay, so I, I just, the, so while I was in Liberia again and on my quest of understanding how does this problem of water and sanitation really impact people at the household? So we were having a training one time for, if my recollection saves me right, it was for journalists. So we're talking about how do you, how do you report about water and sanitation issues? And I ended up talking to this lady um, who I understood she was a leader in her community and we're having a good conversation. And so I, I asked her why, because there's always this notion that these people are there to get their small allowance. That is why they've come to the meeting so that they can get their small allowance. But I was asking this lady, why did she leave other things that she could have done, she could have been doing at that time and be at this meeting to talk to the journalists. And she told me a few years before that time, this was around 2010 when I was talking to her. So she told me in 27, uh, 27th, they, she had, um, there was a cholera outbreak in her community and it affected a lot of people. It affected her family. And during that problem, she lost two people her husband and her son. And I just thought, and you're here today. And she was there at that time teaching people. She had become a community a hygiene education um, promoter. She was telling people, talking to people about how to deal with this issue. Now, hygiene is a very important thing. So it's a, it ranges from washing hands to just having a safe and a place that is clean. Now, if you come to today with COVID, the thing that we're taught the most, that we have to do very often, that we have to do frequently, is to wash our hands with soap. Hand washing, hand washing, hand washing, we're taught, is a very important thing to deal with COVID. Now, COVID, uh, to, 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 to fight COVID, you have to wash your hands, it is, the first line of defense, so to say, it is a preventative measure. You wash your hands, you have a better chance of, of, of not um, infecting yourself. If we look around today, 3 billion people do not have everything that it takes for them to effectively do hand washing. So it's either they don't have soap, or they don't have water, or they don't have both. 
And again, coming back to that woman in the village who has to make a choice between buying salt and buying soap or buying cornmeal versus soap, what choice is she going to make? So if we think that 3 billion people today in a global population of about 7 billion or slightly more than that, that is quite a big number. These are people who are unable to practice the most basic thing that we need for them to be safe, to protect themselves against COVID. And that is, to me, a very fundamental issue that needs to be addressed. This is 2020. I don't think that we should be having 3 billion people without the key ingredients to enable them to do the practice of hand washing. You and I will go to the tap, we will wash our hands when we want, for as long as we want, and we will we'll be fine. But there are 3 billion people out there to whom that is a luxury. And I think that there's more that we can do, not only in the context of COVID, because I think COVID is just a wake up call, but I think there is more we should do during and post COVID to ensure that we should not be in a situation where 3 billion of our brothers and sisters cannot protect themselves by washing hands with soap because part of what they need is not there. That to me is a travesty. As to Tally, I, um, from the story you've shared about the, the women, it's fascinating to me that how her family survived violence and a, a war, a uh, civil war in Liberia and could not survive the cholera because of water, of dirty water. Like that is fascinating to think about just this concept that you can survive something so harsh and something so invisible, like, and, and like it's very basic, can kill you. And how it is important to have that access yes. to clean water. And that's again, something we're experiencing with COVID uh, today that the fact that we don't even have access to water that we can use to wash our hands in certain parts of the world, uh, it's the chance between living and dying. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the choice between uh, having, fulfilling your potential or stopping without a choice uh, that you made on your own. And it's so tragic. Mm -hmm. So Sitali, can you explain to us what is the mission of um, SWA and how you're trying to solve this problem? Because obviously the, the access to water is a systematic problem from what you're describing from these stories of how the government can be involved, how journalists can be involved, how you are involved, how everyone, like water is a system, it's a structure, it's an attitude as well. So what is SWA doing to solve this problem and, um, and help advance uh, the solutions for water access and sanitation access? Great, thank you so much, Rim. So, so just going back to this lady in Liberia, because she inspired me a lot. And in that moment when she told me she had lost her husband and son, just coming back to the point you made, it hit me because there had been a civil war in Liberia for 14 years and her husband and son survived that. Here came a war packed in something that they used every day, water in a jar, water in a glass, they took it and they could not survive that. Okay. And that for me is, is, is the, the, 
the tricky nature of the battle that we face now with COVID. And if we let things run the way they do, we get to the point where 3 billion people cannot fight this war because the ammunition they need at home, which is water and soap is not there. I think that is tragic. Uh, and that should not be the case. And so if we now look at that, what do we do about that? Yes, you can go and provide soap. Yes, you can put what are called hand washing stations in the community and that is okay, it is important, it is needed, it should be done today. But that is not the end of the solution. That is only part, it's only the tip of the iceberg. There are circumstances that have made the situation what it is today. And those circumstances lie in a number of things. What is the state of planning in that country? Are the poor people targeted in terms of resources so that they could have these facilities that, they, that are needed? Are there in that country uh, investments that are going towards the poor people who actually don't have these facilities? And that for me is where we also need to be looking at for solutions. So yes, let's look at solutions that are relief solutions. They provide a service today and tomorrow. But for next year and the year after, there has to be a fundamental shift in how resources are moved, in how priorities are set, in how partners work together to be, to, to be able to target those that are very vulnerable. And this for me is what draws my heart significantly to Sanitation and Water for All as a partnership. So Sanitation and Water for All is a partnership of more than 250 partners today as we speak. 68 of these are governments, and there's some that we're talking to that could join. We cannot resolve the water and sanitation problem without a key player who's the government. The government, hold the, they hold the, the, the purse. They hold the decision-making power. They hold the ability to move resources and create an environment where every type of actor can deliver on what is required to be delivered. So the government is a very critical player, but they're not the only players. We've got the private sector, the businesses. We've got the civil society, those that are able to go into those remote areas and be able to find the people who are nearly excluded from the system. And then we've got the external actors, the donors, the other, um, the UN agencies and other players, even the research and learning institutions, the, the, the research and learning agencies. So all these agencies come together to pick their priority and fight that priority together. Now, the two things I wanted to, to share here, which uh, I think are critical about partnership. We say, uh, you know, if I go back just to Kofi Annan, we were talking about Kofi Annan at the beginning. I remember this story he told that when he, when he became the Secretary General at the UN, um, he was told by the, the Security Council that he needed to reform how the United Nations operated. And then at the next meeting of the Security Council, which was possibly a few weeks after that, I don't know, but they asked him, have you, have you reformed the United Nations? <laughs> and, and then he said, well, I've just, I've just, it's just been a few weeks on the job. And then one of the diplomats joked with him saying, well, but God only had one week to create the entire world. And Kofi Annan responded, well, God had the, advantage, the unique advantage of working alone. So, <laughs> you, 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 if you are alone, perhaps you can do some things, but right now with the sustainable development goals that we have, 
it is imperative that we work together. And working together is not easy. Working together can be hard. Uh, to get consensus is not an easy task. You have to negotiate, and this is where I really value the peace training because there was a lot of training on negotiations. So you, 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 today you cannot deal with the challenges that we have alone. Otherwise you're a tyranny, otherwise you become ineffective or you miss out a whole group of people because you want to appease one group. That is why I love the, 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 the ideals of the partnership I work for because it talks about partnership and realizing it is hard, it takes time, but these things we're trying to resolve are actually very difficult things and yes, we can do something with the, with the, with the, with the very quick fix uh, uh, solutions. But some of the problems that we face are fundamental problems that will actually require us to get deeper into the cause of the problem and bring the various partners together and try and find a solution to deal with those problems. This is uh, brilliant, uh, the importance of partnerships and the story of Kofi Annan is uh, explicitly like his um, words of wisdom. Uh, yes. He would have done it if he was by himself. Like uh, he's not, <laughs> but like in reality, we have to deal with all the different agendas and people who don't necessarily agree on the same issues. They don't have the same priorities. So can you, can you share an example of how um, I like the example of Mali where uh, the government versus the business like so in, in waters you have to work with uh, the different actors like you've mentioned earlier. So can you share an, a, a real life example of how these partnerships can be difficult because people have different agendas. Um, and I like this example about uh, politicians versus uh, business leaders. And I know that's a, I think, um, a narrative that can um, many people from many cultures and backgrounds can relate to it in one way or another. So I'm I'm curious about how does that look like in partnerships around water. Well, so I I think that uh, there there the, a lot of examples there, and uh, I I really applaud the colleagues I work with um, in the work that they do, and also the partner the work that our partners do. So a few weeks ago. Um, uh, the CEO of the partnership I work for, um, and I had the chance to go to Mali. Now, yeah, the, a lot of countries I can pick, um, but I just want to pick this because it's one of the, in fact, it's the last place I was to before, before COVID um, locked our doors. So when we went to Mali, we learned a few things. One, they set up a committee that brings all these different actors together. And that committee, so first, the first step, it might sound easy, right? It might sound very basic. The first step of bringing people together can be very difficult. There are a lot of countries which have got these platforms where people can come together and meet, but you have some partners that do not participate or they participate sporadically or when they, or, or the agenda is not always very straightforward. So the conversation is not rich. So just to have a table where people can gather it's actually a very important thing. So our partners in, in Mali, they have this platform where they can come and gather. They have a committee which they have set up to help sort of bring these voices together. And so on our first night there, we had a conversation with them and we we're talking about, well, what are some of the difficulties here? What are some of the challenges here? Some of the people just easily rose to the floor and they say the big issue here is that the tariffs are very low. So yes, that is a big issue in terms of poverty. Um, you don't want the poor people not to be able to afford water. 
But if you dig deeper into this, you actually find a number of things. It could be possible that the tariff is low because you want everyone to afford it, but it could also be possible that the tariff is low because the politicians are unwilling to charge. There's the, what the, the willingness to charge, which can become a difficult thing for the politician because the politician wants, wants, wants votes. Uh, so there's the, the, the willingness to pay, which is, is the poor pay, is the person able to pay for the service? And in a number of places where people are willing to pay, the missing ingredient is the willingness to charge. Is the politician able to do that? So there was a lot of discussion around that. But whenever that happens, the issue of charging, uh, when that comes into the picture, there has to be a conversation about affordability. Are the people able to afford the service? Or those that can are able to afford a bit more, can they actually be able to do that? And this conversation does not happen in, in depth in a number of places. And just providing a platform where this conversation was happening was fascinating for me because it was getting to the heart of the problem. And part of the problem was that some actors were saying, well, um, the civil society are stopping us from actually having, from they, they're sort of blocking this conversation. And others are saying, well, it's the trade unions. Others are saying, well, it's just the politicians they're unable to move. Others are saying, well, but even if all these were able to move, have you really looked at the, whether people are actually able to pay? And I think that these conversations are the types of conversations we need to have. And the fact that you can have them across business, government, civil society, and external players, donors and others, I think that that's really important because then you're getting all these ideas together and you will be able to find the solution that caters for those people who are unable to pay genuinely they cannot pay and they should not be put in a situation where getting water is a, is a risk for them for their survival and then you have a context where people can pay and they should pay what is the the right um the the, the right cost of of the service and i feel that there is where you have the difficulty that the politician has which is are they willing to charge because they're wondering whether they are risking votes. And I think that this, the platform provides a space for different conversations, including that kind of the hard conversation. Uh, Sitali, um, it's really fascinating when you are like unfolding this complexity of the conversation and the different players. I would like to highlight a little bit further why it is important, I, like you rightly said, people, some people are not even in the equation, like we shouldn't even consider to ask them to pay and that's fair. Uh, that is our duty to give them that access to water because we, if we can do that, we should do that. And if we can, we should push to do that for them. But for those who are able to pay, why it is important for them to pay to support the access to clean water? Why is that even an issue? I think that it's a, I mean, by the time you're getting water in your tap, it's gone through a lot of processes. Yeah. It's the purification, the treatment, the pipes that bring it to your house, the cost of pumping it so that it can get to your house. Uh, all those things actually, they're costs, they, they're important costs. And so most of these, uh, I, I mean, in most cities, these services are provided by utilities. So there's a company that has got employees, it's got uh, different types of uh, um, costs behind it. And I think that it is just right. And there are not many people out there who actually do not want to pay if they can get a good service for the money that they're paying. If they can, if, if they can turn the tap and water will run, 
if they can uh, attain the tap and be confident that the water running out of there will not give them that will not give them diarrhea a good number of people are willing to be able to pay so that's the the the, the um on the side of uh, affordability are they can, can they afford it are they willing to pay that to to pay that's one side uh, but then you have the other side which is are you able to actually take the decision that they should be charged the the right amount and that becomes then the decision that can be a bit difficult but i think that it's a, for most people it's not a question of do you want to pay or don't you want to pay i know that in the 90s there was a big debate around that also around privatization and but that's that is quite it has got links to this discussion but it's quite a different discussion and i think that for now if you ask people are they willing to to pay a, a, a an amount that if they can have the service most people will say yes and and that to me is the important area of this conversation we try to have in the partnership about efficiency so are you able to use the most out of the money that you have so that you can deliver a good service so that people can have it it's really important that people should have water when they need it where they need it you need it at school you should have it there you need it at the market, you should have water there. You need it at the hospital, you should have water there. When you need it, you need it in the, you need, you need it time and space, all those things. You, I think it is important that people should have water when they need it and um, where they need it, it is important. So Sitali, given how complex partnerships are, I know that Rotarians can play a role in helping you and helping uh, a mission similar, like the mission um, of um, SWA and um, around water um, and other uh, actors in this system and structure of water access and accessing to water, access to water. How can, what can Rotarians do to help you uh, with this partnerships or with um, bringing people together because uh, do you do you have an idea? Do you have a suggestion or a call to action to Rotarians uh, who are watching? So thank you so much, Vin. That's a very good, a very important question. So I think that there are a number of things here that can be done. So as I was saying, um, as we speak now, especially in the context of COVID, people do need the services. And Rotarians come from communities. I think that they should be able to help in the communities where they are for people to have the services. What types of services are important, especially now in the time of COVID? Um, hand washing uh, 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 services that people can uh, would need, those are important. And uh, if, if they can support through a club, through an emergency grant, I think that that would be uh, very well appreciated in the community. Uh, and, and responding in such direct ways can help. Number two, this, as I was saying, is just the tip of the iceberg. So you can put a hand washing facility there. It will be op operational for two, three months. Maybe by then um, uh, uh, people have found other solutions, but there's a deeper problem, which is a systemic problem. And uh, we cannot um, be blind to that problem. The problem of our resources being invested in the right issues. Are, they, are there plans to actually reach those communities so that come the next pandemic, you don't have to go and put a hand washing station in that same community in the same location where you did. 
So how can we work today to ensure that we avoid having to do these quick fixes when the next pandemic shows up? And I think the solution to that problem is a one which calls on us, calls on Rotarians to speak to their leaders, to speak to um, uh, people, um, uh, to become champions for water and sanitation when they're talking to business leaders, when they're talking to civic leaders, when they're talking to other community members to ensure that those people can also make the right decisions in terms of investing, what, investing in the right choices for water and sanitation. I think that it should not just end by putting a hand washing station in a school or putting a hand washing station in a, in a, in a wash, um, in a healthcare facility. Those are important and I think they should be done. But I think that Rotarians are champions in their own rights. They are respected people in their communities. They are people who can pick up the phone and speak to, to their political or civic leader and get those leaders to try and figure out what can we do in the long term to make sure that at the next pandemic, we are not having 3 billion people who can't wash their hands because there's no soap. And I, I, I think that that's, uh, that's important. If you want, you can also support our partnership. We'd be happy to receive, to receive your support. Um, uh, we're engaging with a lot of uh, platforms, with a lot of people. And you, uh, um, on our website, we also have some resources on um, COVID response, for example, some information that we're putting there. And we're also speaking with ministers from a lot of countries. We're speaking to them so that they, so that sanitation, water, and hygiene can be politically prioritized in those countries. So that when the Minister of Finance is talking to the head of state, the Minister of Finance can also be saying, look, I have heard from my community, this is a big problem, and I would like to see that in next year's budget, we can invest significantly in water and sanitation. And I think that Rotarians can be champions of messages like that in their communities, in the businesses, in their work areas, and try and get the message out. And I think that's, uh, that's really important. Um, Sitali, I echo what you said about Rotarians' uh, role in convening and mobilizing uh, their leaders or the stakeholders around water issues, uh, especially that Rotarians have done it in the past. In, in the past they advanced human rights. They signed yes. a declaration for human rights and access to water and sanitation is literally moving, um, uh, pushing human rights uh, forward in an application. So they can be advocates and the agenda that unifies Rotarians is the humanitarian um, aspect of, of, of water and sanitation because life, water is life and sanitation is dignity and those are basic human rights that Rotarians have always championed that's part of their DNA and um, getting the projects and the um, on the ground is one uh, part of it but the advocacy is an important and crucial part that Rotarians should capitalize on because that is the DNA of Rotary we've always been leaders in our communities we know the actors we can call people up we can talk to the businesses the government representatives anyone involved, they, we can even convene meetings in our communities uh, where this help is needed. And um, I, I know that SWA has a map of where uh, the needs are right now, where are the priorities. So I would advise Rotarians to go on the SWA 
website and check those. Um, and we also will follow up after the webinar with um, that link to the map so you see where the actual and immediate needs are right now. And if you know someone, if you, um, if you are from these countries, please take action right now. It could be a phone call, it could be an email, it's something you can do from your home that can push the agenda forward. So, and it's a humanitarian agenda and it's an extension of Rotarians' um, advocacy and championship of human rights. So Sitali, given that Rotary, uh, I know that you would not ask this of Rotarians if you did not um, have an experience of them uh, changing your own life in a way. So, right. uh, so I wonder if you can share with us as a Rotary Peace Fellow, how Rotarians' support of your education helped you in your journey today to champion uh, and lead on, on this cause, this important cause uh, to make water and sanitation accessible to all. Um, so tell us how you became a Rotary Peace Fellow and uh, how did this Peace Fellowship helped you advance your career and leadership. Yes, well, thank you so much, Rim. So usually I would, I would like to answer this question from the beginning, right? But I will answer this question from the end and then I will walk back to the beginning. beginning. The end is that without the Peace Fellowship or without the fellowship from Rotary, I would not have been able to apply for the job that I have today. Mm -hmm. Because the job that I have today required a minimum level of education which without the fellowship, I would not have attended and would therefore not have been able to apply. So I really, I'm extremely appreciative to, to Rotary, to, to, to the Peace Fellowship for giving me the chance to actually do the education that I did and to enable me to, to, to have this opportunity. Now, the journey to that point was that I, I was working in Senegal and uh, with a number of things, uh, uh, were happening. I, when I was working in Liberia, I met a, a Canadian journalist and we were talking about um, education and she was the first one who said, you know what, you should apply for the Rotary Peace Fellowship. And I went home that night, I looked at it, I said, there is no way I can get into this. It's too, it's too good to, I just didn't feel that I, I had the qualifications to get into it. So I didn't apply. I applied to school to get a, to get into a master's program and I got into a master's program at Duke and then Duke told me because I was unable to pay for the for the tuition fees and everything so I deferred and then Duke said have you looked at the Rotary Peace Fellowship then I remembered the Canadian journalist in Liberia wow. and I said well yes I did but I don't think that I can be able to actually make it into the program they said look at it again so I looked at it and then they introduced me to, to Susan at, um, at, 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 at Duke. Uh, yes, and they introduced me to Susan. Susan. Sorry? I just want to give a big shout out to Susan. She's our hero. We yes, both are her. graduates from the same uh, Peace Center. Center. Yeah, yes. and, and Susan is our hero. And I, we should give her just a shout out. We love you, Susan. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, she's, she's fantastic. Yeah. And so through connections with her, I, was, um, I applied. I applied through a club in Senegal and they didn't know at the time that there was in fact a deadline. So they told me, no, it's fine and there's no deadline. And I kept on reminding them and the deadline actually passed. So then I went back to Susan, I went back to Rotary International 
And a few weeks down the line, they found me a club um, uh, that interviewed me via Skype. Um, and then um, a few, it was in fact, I think a year later, um, the point at which I really thought I, I am going to do this because I'd gotten also another job offer from the same organization I was working with at the time to, work, to go and work in Oxford. And so the same day that offer came, also the Rotary Peace Fellowship came. But some things had happened in my life uh, between the time I applied to the time that the offer came. So I was, I was one time this in 2011, around September, we had elections in Zambia. And at this time I was working in Senegal. And they took long to announce the results for the elections and it took maybe two or three days. And so one night when they announced the elections, I was monitoring Facebook. So I was busy on Facebook, typing and seeing everything. And then somebody typed, I have heard gunshots. So this is somebody in Zambia and somebody I know. And this person says, I have heard gunshots. Yeah. And I replied, don't say that we're a peaceful nation. We don't do that. Closed, things happened. I closed my computer, went to sleep. This was around maybe um, 11 p.m. in Senegal or so. So I would go to bed. I wake up in the morning around 10. I, was, I see I had a missed call on my phone. And when I looked at it, it was my wife who was in Zambia at the time. And then a few minutes later, she called. And she rarely calls. I, I initiate the call because of cost and things like that. So she's calling and I'm wondering what's going on. I pick up the phone and she says, Dad, meaning my father, was shot the night before. And I thought she's joking. What kind of a bad joke is this? I said, no, you, she says, no, we're actually at the hospital now. He's alive, but the situation looks very delicate. And luckily the institution I worked for at the time uh, arranged for me to travel to Zambia that same day. So I prepared myself, went to the airport, took out my phone to call them. At this time, there was no Wi-Fi on, on planes. So I called home to tell them I was now getting on a plane. I was going to switch off my phone. The next thing, I would be calling them from Zambia. And they said, well, before you switch off your phone, we just want to tell you it's sad, but we think you should know. Dad could not make it, his dad. And I could not process it. Zambia is a peaceful nation, largely. We got independence in 1964 never been a civil war. Some of our neighbors have had civil wars. When it comes to peace, we often joke that we are the envy of our neighbors. And here I was going for the funeral of my father who had been killed in something that we could not explain who had died um, in this sort of political situation. And so we got home there were all these stories of he, him and his landlord and his friend had just moved out of the house. They went to the roadside when the election results were announced and there were people there in the streets. There was a politician who lived not far from there. Uh, they, they had people running saying, well, the police have arrived at the house of the politician. Then eventually there were gunshots. Two, two of the gunshots um, hit two people, one of whom was my father and his landlord and both of those men died within 24 hours. I just couldn't put things together. To this day, that story has, been, has never been closed. We don't know, was it the police? Was it a politician? Was it just somebody else? And I thought the gift of peace is not a permanent state of affairs. 
and it's also not something that I think we can talk about it in macro terms. Zambia is largely a peaceful state. But in that moment, my family was going through a very tragic experience, which was not just an accident. It had, it was boiling to get to a point where somebody easily picked a gun and shot. I, we had gotten to a point where this was the beginning of something that could be really tricky. And I thought what ne is needed for places that might be too comfortable with their journey so that they actually can be awake and know that they can lose it. Because Zambia could be, is one of, in my mind, it was one of those places which has enjoyed a really peaceful moment. But in this political moment, something really bad happened to my family. And I now have two choices, just sort of going back, going forward a few months, I have two choices, a job to move to Oxford or go and do the Peace Fellowship, um, go and study at Duke to do the International Development Program. But with the, the Peace Fellowship um, support, the choice was easy. And even if I came from, I come from a peaceful, largely peaceful country, uh, it was important for me to understand peace and conflict resolution. Now, the final thing I can end with here is, I, I think it was a, a poem or uh, it was something that I saw in Senegal, which was said, I believe, by a Senegalese girl who said, outside is peace, at home is war. Mm. And I, that brought home the thinking, yes, when we step outside, it can be all peaceful and nice, but there can be domestic violence inside the house. And now, especially in the time of COVID, it's even more crucial because people are spending a lot of time together. And so peace and conflict resolution to me was clear it is not just about guns and bullets and tankers on the battlefield. That battlefield can shift. It can also occupy very specific moments in time, like it did for my family, where it happened and then we lost the old man, we lost my dad. Or it can happen continuously in a house where the girl says, if I walk out, I'm walking into a sea, a, a, an ocean of peace. When I return home, it's a battlefield, it's war. There are homes like that. And that, for me, peace and conflict resolution is really a spectrum of a lot of things that we need to pay attention to. Sitali, what's your father's name? Manjolo Sitali. Mangelo Sitali. I think yes. Angelo is so proud of you. And I, um, I know that he taught you a lot of, um, of what you um, apply in your life today. He was uh, a man of service and he taught you um, uh, when there was no access to school or education and taught other people in the community. So uh, I know that he will be so proud of you because um, you resemble um, his values and you inspire everyone around you. And, uh, and, and what an honor to have you be part of um, everyone. Like, like in my, personally in my journey, it's just an honor to have you be part of my life in, as a friend and a, as a great um, uh, colleague as well. So Sitali, I, um, I, I love the, the notion that you've highlighted about how peace and resilience are so important and so intertwined. Um, so for pe peace is exactly like water and water is part of peace. 
uh, they're both systematic. They're both impacted by our attitudes and the systems surrounding them and the structures in place. So in that political moment in Zambia, uh, the community or the attitude was not resilient enough where that could have protected your father. And that's what um, Duke UNC Peace Center has helped us kind of understand. Um, it's not sometimes, for, for both of us, like for me, I come from a place of conflict as well. And um, the, the, edu the program helped us also articulate or um, art, uh, categorize the complexity of conflict, the complexity of uh, our communities around us in a way where we could be effective leaders and um, more instrumental in approaching those complexities. So um, I'm so happy that you have um, been part of this program and obviously the work you're doing is a testimony to how it has um, helped in, in that way. And for that, I would like to invite the Rotarians who are watching right now. Uh, if you are looking for future Peace Fellows to, to join the program or future um, leaders who you would like for them to um, em empower you, um, uh, sorry, for future leaders who you would like to empower, um, please uh, share this webinar with them. Let them know about Sitala's story, fascinating uh, leadership and his contribution to a very pressing priority of our world, and that is water and sanitation. Um, so Sitali, it's time for us to open it for Q&A. Uh, I know our audience has been patiently waiting for to ask you their questions. And I will start with the question from Amani. Uh, Amani Shinawi. So she says um, that she would like to thank us very much uh, for this amazing webinar. I learned a lot today, she says, about peace building and the importance of water and sanitation. Uh, nowadays, and with the COVID-19 pandemic, I'd like to know how can I help from my place here in Egypt? Oh, hi, Amani, she's from Egypt. Uh, what's the mission that a Rotarian can be involved in? Awareness or another effective mission that we can achieve through the Peace Action Group? So she's talking, she's asking what could be her role as a member of the RAG um, in supporting your cause to advance water and sanitation? Uh, thank you and thank you so much, Elmani, for the, for the um, uh, kind message. Uh, I think that uh, your support could start with the club um, and seeing if your club can do more around water and sanitation. Perhaps, um, as I understand, it's possible maybe to, to, to apply for, for some emergency grant and support to, to, do, to, to be able to respond in some communities. As I was saying, uh, there are three billion people out there who just will not be able to wash their hands with soap during this COVID pandemic. And yet washing hands with soap is the first line of defense to deal with the crisis that we have. So I think that working with your club to encourage uh, perhaps a project on water and sanitation, I think that would be a very um, direct and immediate thing that you could start to work on. I would also encourage you and other community leaders to reach out to other civic leaders within, within your community and see what, 
what can be done in the long term. Um, what's the state of water and sanitation in your community or in other communities within um, Egypt. Uh, Egypt is a member of the partnership of sanitation and water for all partnership. Rim had talked of a map. Um, so in, on that map, what you will see are the countries that are our partners, countries that have joined SWA, 68 of them at the moment. So I think that it would be good to engage with some of the civic leaders in your country to see how perhaps um, the Rotary District there could be could could be engaged, could be could be helpful, and maybe they would target you to uh, places where 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 you could make some interventions. But I think that more than those direct interventions now, it is to contribute to the long-term um, approaches of um, dealing with this water and sanitation challenge. Are there communities that you are aware which are not actually having services? What are the reasons? and how can those communities be integrated in a broader response? I think that's some of the, the important things to do. Water in healthcare facilities, sanitation in healthcare facilities, that's a really, really important um, issue. Healthcare facilities now, as the first places where people will go if they are sick, um, become, they become a very critical um, uh, spot for, for for disease transmission or, and even treatment for treatment. And, and so it is important that these facilities also have um, water and sanitation services. And I think if you're able to check within your location what your club can do for the local hospital, what the club can do for, for, for some of the communities, I think that's important. But I encourage, I encourage Rotarians to look beyond the immediate bread that you can put on the table to look beyond the water and the, uh, the, the taps and toilets that can be done today to get into the conversation about these systemic, systemic challenges going forward. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sitali. Amani, I'd like to also add to what Sitali has said. I think identifying right away who is uh, the key actors in water in Egypt. Maybe if you can do some research, uh, maybe even reach out to SWA and uh, ask them about who's currently um, leading on those decisions. And maybe you can take that knowledge farther to your Rotary Club and explain to them, this is an agenda that we need to start working on. Let's tackle the, let's have, let's come up with an approach to address the partners uh, or the key actors and really strategize with your Rotary Club to advance um, um, the conversation in the direction uh, that would allow for more access of water and sanitation. Um, so now the next question is um, a very interesting one. I think I would like to combine Allison's question with Mark. Um, so they both basically ask similar question. How does water and peace literally um, affect one another. In certain, um, in certain countries, water can impact um, uh, conflict. Some people use it as a conflict tool. Sometimes water can also be used as a peaceful tool. So how does the peace, air, peace uh, focus and water could um, have, what kind of relationships they have from your practical experience? So thanks, Reem. Uh, so, I have not worked directly on something like that since I joined the partnership, but I know that as the Remo was saying, um, water can be a tool of war, can be, I was talking to somebody, was it just last year, towards the end of last year, 
from one of the Eastern European countries where they have to negotiate what the utility and how it to, to keep it running so that some communities which are in a place that's barricaded it's in the opposition place but you still want the services to get there so water and companies that operate these facilities can become very vulnerable in times of conflict and there's also been a lot of uh, literature that have been saying that as we see more and more water scarcity that can become a point of contention in the future now water, uh, there's water for household use, there's water for agriculture, there's water for many reasons. And that is already a big issue in some, some, some regions and countries when you're talking about transboundary um, uh, management of these services. So they can sit in, in that nexus of peace and conflict. Um, water and sanit water services especially can sit in that nexus of um, peace and conflict, but a bigger issue is also that they can be victims of conflict. If there is a war and um, uh, you're unable to run the sewerage system, then disease can easily um, come up. Uh, in Liberia, they lost uh, 250,000 people during the civil war. A good number of those were also due to water related, um, uh, water and sanitation related challenges. So conflict itself can actually weaken the system so that it is unable to respond and fight some of the most basic challenges that are there. Um, if you are unable to, to, the sewerage system is unable to run, the trucks cannot, um, you cannot treat or you cannot pump out the waste and very easily disease can break out. And that can be, that is a consequence of um, uh, this unstable environment that then impacts on the services uh, that people have. So, so I think if you look at that combination of peace and conflict and where water sits, it sits both in the place where it can exacerbate the problem if it's not managed well, but it can also be a victim of conflict when people use it as a weapon of war. So um, that's really a good transitioning to the next question from actually our Facebook audience. Uh, they're still watching and uh, Diana is asking, how do you prevent water from being a political tool. I want to combine this question with a question from Bill uh, because I believe it. Um, you can ask answer both. Um, she says, what do you believe needs to be done so that periods become nonpartisan issue globally? So basically how water and sanitation, is there a way for water and sanitation to never be political issue or is that reality? Like <laughs> there are solutions, like people are wondering how can politics be out of it? Yes, okay, so thanks. I think that um, I'm ex that's a very exciting question. I think the response to that, in, so if I go back a few years, in 2011, I was working in Senegal at the time, and we were looking, we, we sort of were asking the, ourselves the question, what do we do with elections? Elections, when you have to elect your senator or your Congress representative, you're a member of parliament. So most of civil society actors at the time, non-government actors, they were focusing on um, election monitoring, just making sure there is peace, that you go and vote and there's nobody who bothers you. But we were asking the question, no, elections can actually deliver more than just um, civic duty of you cast the ballot. 
So we were looking at how do you get the people running for election to take these social issues as their issue and really make them an apolitical issue. Wow. So we, we came up with some campaigns in a number of areas where we went to people who were running for election and we said, what is your position on water? Can you actually make a commitment that when you get to parliament, you will support investments for water and sanitation? So this is, and we, a good number of people did that. So the one example I want to give is that in Liberia, out of that process, they came up with the legislative caucus for WASH, for water, sanitation, and hygiene. Now this is a, it's a multi-party type of uh, caucus because the people who, who have signed on to this pledge at the time that they are running, they belong to different parties. And they say, yes, I'm committed. I will, I will, um, I will be able to, 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 to support water and sanitation as a critical investment area when I'm elected. So I think that using those moments is one way to deal with it. The second way to deal with it is you as an actor, I think you have to speak to people of different hue, or people of different political persuasions and uh, let them know that you're also talking to the other people because this issue is as important to this political institution as it is to the other. I, I think that uh, if we depoliticize the people that we engage with, that becomes a critical issue. Now, the issue of periods, I, I will channel here some of the things that I, I have heard also from some of our leaders, some of whom have been politicians before. So one of our leaders was saying, how do you make a politician realize that water sanitation and hygiene can actually get them votes? Because for politicians, that's the currency, it's the votes. I, I think that for, 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 for the issue of periods, I think politicians need to know that there are a number of people who are affected if the menstrual hygiene products are not there and that by them supporting a program that can make these products available it helps them also politically now this is something that they are doing because it is important to do the byproduct of which is that they they will be seen to be good people um and i think that 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 in in the political arena is part of how the politicians work. So I think that we need to be a political in the people that we, we approach. We need to approach them early enough, maybe when they're still running, uh, before they actually cast the vote, get them to commit something that then they can follow up with. The example of Liberia, where, the, where there's a, a, a WASH legislative caucus, uh, it, it was really eye-opening. You've got men and women in there. You've got people of different political persuasions in there as well. Uh, but making them see the results in their communities and how those results can translate into economic benefits, benefits for education and benefits uh, for them uh, in terms of engagement with the, with the community. I think that's important. Thank you. That's, that's really great, Estatali, and I'd like to add that. So for when we uh, motivate politicians to incorporate this, those agendas on, um, on their uh, plan, to win the elections, it's also important to inform and educate the grassroots about what's best yes. for them. Uh, so it is because it's a system and a structure. So 
brilliant. I would like, because for we have like uh, four more questions that I, we can maybe run through them faster. Uh, so uh, the, the one saying, thank you so much for uh, your past and continued work on fixing the problem of clean water access for people who need it. I was wondering if you were familiar with the work of Justin uh, Warren and uh, Fight for the Forgotten in Congo and how they helped communities build and sustain their own clean water wells. How important is it to help communities gain and maintain their own clean sources of water rather yes. than simply providing conventional aid? Yes, yes. and that, to start with that, that is a very important thing. Ownership breeds sustainability. If people can own it, they will most likely manage it well and it will, be, it will be there many years down the line. If you go in, you do it for them, there's perhaps this tendency of, oh, it's, it's, it's done by X. And, and I'm not saying that's not important. It's there as a relief, but if people can own it, if they can invest in it, that also helps. And that is why, I mean, when it comes to these big systems, water running through our taps to our homes, it's taxes, right? So that's how we, that's why when we had a power cut last night, we had a power cut for many hours and it was the first time it was, we had no power for a long time. But you begin to go back into thinking the money that you spend in some of these. So taxes, they support with ownership. I think that for those communities, you want people to also feel a sense of a contribution that they are making. You want people to feel a sense of they have determined what they want and where they want it to be. And then that can help with sustainability. And, uh, and there, there are a lot of ways to do, it, to, 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 to do that, to, to engage with the community. Perfect. So um, this is an interesting question uh, from Susan. She says, are there examples of societies where water is seen as a precious commodity and that just because you have access and funds to pay for it isn't wasted? So. I don't, uh, so the question is like, is, is there an example of where water is seen as a precious commodity and um, only, so basically the, uh, she wants to talk about the economic inequality and in accessing water and how sometimes water is used as a commodity um, that could disempower people from lower uh, income levels. So if, if only you can access it if you have the money for it. And if you don't, it is, um, it's not worth helping. So I wonder if you have any comments on that. Uh, so I'm not completely sure that I understand it well, but around sort of this scarcity and the, the value that people put on these services, I think when you get to the moment of scarcity, that's when people begin to add a different level of value to the services that they have. And I'm thinking here, it's not that like I, I, I have seen some reports, but I, I was in Cape Town last year with a colleague, um, um, Virginia, who, who did uh, our work on mutual accountability. And uh, this was after the, I mean, you could see in Cape Town at the time that they were still concerned about the 
possibility of running out of water sometime in the future. And so the way they've started to manage their water systems, their notices you find in the lodges about how much water you should use and, 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 and just how you should conserve and all that. I think that scarcity can drive people to levels of awareness and levels of management that can um, help to, to, to bring in uh, conservation. I think that um, what is important here is uh, something that I've also heard in the sector, some um, uh, for all and not all for some. So there should at least be some services for everyone and not all services just for a few people. Uh, I think that that becomes a bit of a problem. That's a brilliant way to answer this question. Um, uh, so I have uh, one question. I have time for only one question. And then I'll ask you some uh, inspirational question that would incorporate some of the other questions. So the first, uh, so that's another one by Amani. She's asking, she's a Rotarian and she's asking for global grants, which is a program of Rotary. Uh, don't they work like magic for the sanitation projects? She's wondering if that's a good approach with the global grants for sanitation projects. Do we have to increase partnerships, hence achieving more water service projects? Okay. So she's wondering if like the, the global grants are a good solution for sanitation, but not necessarily, uh, maybe we need to elevate the, the Rotarian um, involvement on water service projects. So she just wonders like, she wants a little bit more depth on that. Okay, so I think that there are a few things here. One is scale. The extent of the problem is huge. It's not impossible to overcome. So, I mean, it's huge. I think that it just requires us to also be ambitious. Also speed, so scale and speed. Uh, so the, like I was saying, the 3 billion people out there who do not have um, access or they don't have everything they need for them to wash their hands properly. It could be soap, it could be water they don't have. Uh, so we're looking at the really huge numbers. And I think that this is something that should be taken at a very, with a lot of ambition to tackle this problem. And then it cannot be tackled with a process that will take months or years to, to get to results. Uh, I think that the process of moving from conceptualizing, the, from having the idea to having, turning that idea into a service, if that process can be shortened a little bit, I think that will give us speed. If the, the quantity of what is available is also increased, I saw that this problem of sanitation can actually be dealt with resources that match the challenge. I think that that is important. I think it is a, I mean, there are grants that can do something in terms of providing some, um, some services here and there. But when you're talking about sanitation and hygiene, I think that the numbers are significant. And it seems to me, this is something that should be tackled like the polio um, strategy. Grab it as a big corporate uh, issue, um, run with it and uh, put as much resources and institutional support behind it and, um, and, and, and through that uh, 
get get um, to to the numbers of people that actually uh, um, can help to deliver the results that are needed. Um, and maybe just to end it with one one thing that say it's partly something that Kofi Annan said. You can see how much I'm inspired by him. That uh, I think that the the challenge of our time now is for us to have partnerships which are as profound in their consequences as they are admirable in their aspirations. I think that we need to, to aim really high, but it doesn't end at aiming high. It also means that the resources should match in quantity and the speed with which we actually deploy those resources. Vitaly, thank you so much. Now I want to end with the inspirational notes for our youth and uh, for something that people can take with them, uh, feeling inspired. You've inspired us the entire way, but for extra inspiring. <laughs> uh, so um, for uh, that's actually a combined with this question about your advice for aspiring peace fellow. I want to package it with and increase it for all the youth who's watching right now and uh, the aspiring leaders of the future, the change makers of the world, including the aspiring Rotarian Peace Fellows. Um, what would you advise them? Uh, what are the lessons that you've learned from your journey as um, uh, a leader uh, in, in your career and in your passion in your community? Uh, what lessons would you like to share with them? Yes, well, thank you so much, Reem. Uh, and of course, all our paths are very different. And I'm, I'm very personally extremely inspired by the work you've done, Reem. And uh, even when we met uh, at, uh, in North Carolina, um, I'm not sure you recall, but when, when you were telling me of the work that you were doing from back home in Palestine, it was very, very inspiring. So I think that um, what are some of the things that I have seen from people that have inspired me and things that I have tried to do I, 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 the identifying the thing that is a passion to you is an important thing. Uh, like I was saying, for me, water and sanitation, yes, it is a job, but the fact that it is a job, it nearly comes as a, as a secondary thought. Because for me, I still have this image of this guy who takes me through this community. We get to the end of the community and I'm wondering why has he brought me here. He tells me to look east. I look east and I see these people. In my mind, those people are still seated there. Yes, they stood up that day. They left. They went back home and they've moved on. But I know that the world um, is not where it needs to be because that image is stuck in me. So what keeps me... Um, what keeps the fire burning is that image, but also what wakes me up at night to think how can we deal with it, it is still that image. And so what is it that inspires you to the extent that if you lost your job today, tomorrow you would still wake up wanting to do it. That for me is, is an important thing. And then secondly, how do you, I, I, how do you cultivate this satali? starts from a place of compassion how do you how do you grow that compassion yeah, I, and dedication in your heart yes i think so i think that uh they, they, that, yeah that, that was bringing me to the second point um i remember one time when i was working in zambia um we recruited someone we gave someone an opportunity to do an internship within a few weeks 
I mean, that could have grown into an opportunity, a job opportunity, but we, we let go of the person. A few months later, we found somebody and we reignited the process and hired this person. Why? What was the difference? It was the fire in the person, the fire in the belly. That and the fire in the belly is one of these very is one of these difficult things to define, but when you see it, you know it. It's the it's the passion. It's the and it's it can come with knowledge. It can come with the with academic achievement, but the fire and the passion is something the oomph that you cannot see, you cannot put in the, in academic terms. Yes, the paper can be there, but it has to. The person wants to do it. The person is thinking, um, is thinking of outside options to deal with the problem all the time. They're coming up with ideas. How can we solve this? Yes, yesterday we we're talking about this. They're dwelling on the issue even when they don't have to. Now we're not saying that we turn the person into a robot, but you can just see that this is a crucial thing to them. They care about it, and that, to me, is important. Um, in addition to the qualifications that people get. Uh, qualifications tell you, what do they do? They tell people that you can learn. So I think being able to bring the love and passion is a really important um, uh, 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 issue. Which is very beautifully summarized, I think, by the Rotary motto, service above self. When people yes. live by service and for service, uh, that is uh, an easy path for you to start cultivating and look beyond your uh, look for a mission or uh, advance a mission that is close to your heart. Um, Sitali, you are an amazing father of Sitalito. And, <laughs> and um, I know how you, you have a beautiful family. And uh, yeah. if you would like to uh, leave um, or advise Sitalito um, or like leave him with a value that you would always want him to hold on to, because I know how much your father had an impact on you, uh, what kind of impact you would want to have on Sitalito and other, and other people around the world, but I know uh, as a father, you would like to, to leave something for him that is um, uh, of value and of, of principle, so what would that be? So well, if you ask Sitalito today, what are the values of this house? He will tell you, you should love school, you should love family, you should love um we, we we are religious people we love we love to go to church we love to worship love for god is an important aspect in this in for us and uh love for community so um those things my father told me three of those hard work yes was was one of them uh he taught us what hard work education and love of god and here we try to add community and family as well, that that is, uh, we find that it has the, I think it has the fundamental building blocks of what one needs to survive and be able to contribute. Uh, if we're working hard um, and we value our education, it doesn't need to be high flyer, but we need to have the basic level of understanding to um, communicate and the type that is also humble that has got some humility in it. Sitali, I mean, uh, Sitalito like would be very proud to have you as his father, uh, and he is. I, I, I think he's already proud. Uh, I think he's already. Uh, yeah, I think he's bossing you around a little bit too. Like I've seen stuff. It has. <laughs> 
<laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. Now he's telling me how to pronounce things since he's he's he spent most of his time in America. Uh, so he's, he's <laughs> <laughs> um, Sitali, I can talk to you forever. Uh, it's I'm really sad to stop the webinar conversation, but I know that you have to go to your next thing. And I know that people um, need to also, we need to wrap this up, but I, it's, it's amazing talking to you. It has been a fabulous uh, time and inspiring for, for me personally. And I know for all the people who are watching, um, Sally, thank you so much for what you do to make our world better for all the people you uh, keeps you up at night. Uh, the 3 billion who um, need access to clean water and sanitation right now and for being their champion and for being a good person, a person of char character, a great friend and um, an exceptional leader. Uh, thank you for everything. Irene, thank you so much to you and to the Rotary Action Group uh, for Peace and also to all the Rotarians for this for their service. And I really, really appreciate that um, you have made this platform available to different people to share what they do. We need this in this time of COVID. And I hope, I wish you personally and also your colleagues and the, the Rotarians you work with the best in your mission and we're there to support and anytime just give a call and we'll join hands. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Everyone is already typing thank you on the chat. Everyone is excited. Um, and uh, thank you all for making this webinar a success. We're doing it for you, with you. Uh, thank you for being dedicated audience and uh, fans of the webinar. Uh, without you, we wouldn't be here. And I appreciate everyone who's made this webinar a success, the team, the leadership, the membership, the mission, everybody. Enjoy your day, uh, stay happy, keep the smile, and uh, let's live by service above self. Thank you so much, Sitali. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Have a good evening.